them is March 29. Maybe some 30 years ago, Robert Cunningham's a 55-year-old police officer, been an officer for 30 years. He goes into his favorite restaurant just outside of Yonkers, New York, called Sal's Pizzeria, orders his favorite meal, linguine and clam. His waitress that night is Phyllis Penza. She's been a waitress there for 24 years. She knows him and he her very well. When the meal is over, he makes a deal. He says, Phyllis, how about instead of leaving you a tip, I split a lottery ticket with you if I win. I have a $1 lottery ticket in my pocket. In place of a tip, I'll just say we share it. How many of you'd take that offer? <laughs> you say, just show me the money, honey. So she sat down to the table or the booth, and she helped him choose the numbers. That was Friday, March 29. The following night was Saturday, March 30th, and Robert Cunningham learned that he won the New York State $6 million lottery. He waited until the following morning, April the 1st, April Fool's Day, <laughs> to call Phyllis. It was 9 a.m. She answered the phone, and when he introduced himself, she just said, I'm still asleep. Leave me alone. He spent the next few minutes trying to convince her that he had just won the $6 million lottery and that she was going to get a full half of this. When he finally convinced her, she erupted in screams and woke up her husband, who's a construction worker, telling him that she was going to be rich. Robert took the ticket down, he turned it in, he received the $6 million, and he split it right down the middle. Each family received $281,715 each for the next 21 years. Robert says he never thought twice about sharing the ticket. Even though it was his, he said, when we make a promise, we do it. That's how it works. That's the way my family operates. Amen. A promise can change your life. Never underestimate the power of a promise to change your life. If it's intended for you, it will open up for you new possibilities that you never imagined before. Last week as the service closed, I heard several of you stand and read or cite some of the passages in scripture that have become promises for you and I bet if we'd have stopped the service each one of you could have told a story behind it and how that promise opened up for you those possibilities but since that time last week I've received or talked to many of you who've said how do I get one of these things and how do I know that I have one all I said last week is that you don't chase a promise the way you chase a rabbit. You get a promise the way you get a deer. You go where they live, and you wait for one. 
then you said, I don't know what that means. Get specific. If I get more specific and you keep the instructions, I'm not afraid that they'll fail. I'm afraid they'll work and you'll end up with something less than a promise. Something like wishful thinking. The best thing I can tell you is that you never get a promise by going after a promise. You get a promise by going after God. There is a huge difference between those two. When a bee comes into a flower, a tubular open flower, he lands on the flower and starts dancing around. You've seen it, haven't you? It's like he'd rather be nowhere else. He just stays there and gets all the nectar. No one knows. Is it the color of the flower? Is it the nectar of the flower? He's just attracted to the flower for the sake of the flower. What he doesn't know is that while he is dancing around in the center of that flower, pollen is attaching itself to his feet. He does not know this. He does not care. He's not there for the pollen. He's there for the flower. Then when he leaves the flower with the pollen attached to his feet and lands on another flower, he cross-pollinates the two. He carries the stigma, the male reproductive part of the flower, over to the other flower, and it reproduces. The bee does not do this because he's attracted to the pollen, but because he's attracted to the flower. When he's attracted to the flower, the pollen attaches itself to the bee. This is how promises work. We are attracted to God for the sake of God. And while we linger long and often in God's presence, promises attach themselves to us. I don't know what that means. I can hear it. Get specific. Let me get specific. Set aside a time, preferably in the morning, preferably more than 15 minutes. Start with an hour. When you get into this time alone with God, turn your cell phone off. Don't just put it aside. Leave it out of the room or turn it off. Some of us can't not receive a text. We love texts. It does not matter who we're talking to. Who else might want to talk to me? So turn it off or leave it out of the room and put yourself in a listening posture. You may come into the room saying, I've got all these concerns, I've got these appointments, and so you'll be tempted to rush into God's presence and start talking. Remember the story we told of the table, the Trinity sitting at the table. Do you remember this? Please say yes. Oh, good. There's a fourth chair at the table, and this conversation between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that takes place through the Scripture, wait for it, has been happening for 
thousands and thousands and thousands of years. What you don't want to do is barge into that conversation and just start talking. You sit in their presence with the scripture open and you talk about what they want to talk about, not just what you want to talk about. You read and you listen to the Father speak to the Son, and you affirm it, you agree with it, you take place in that conversation. Then, as the conversation progresses, you might say, there's a couple things I've been thinking about. It's been bugging me. Can I bring these up? Probably if you wait long enough, those things will go down in number. As you start talking to God about your things, you will hear themes from Scripture surface again and again. It will be the same theme frequently. When it occurs to you, write it down. Don't take dictation. Just write it down. Carry it with you. Don't tell anybody yet. Wait a little longer. If it's a word from God, it'll come back again. And when it comes back, write it down. Over time, you will see that the things you are hearing in God's presence are remarkably similar to each other over a period of time. That's when you bring other people into the picture and say, this is what I think I hear God saying. You need to talk to people who know God and they know you really well and say, I think I hear God saying this. Does that sound like something the Father would say? How do I know if this is really God's voice? Some of you have said. Here's a couple of indicators. A promise from God always rises from the Word of God. Wishful thinking rises from your own ambitions. But the promise of God happens while I am involved reading, meditating on the Word of God. It usually does not occur out of thin blue air. Number two, a promise from God always changes the direction of your life. Wishful thinking will answer an immediate problem or solve an immediate problem or it will give you an immediate sense of satisfaction. And these are wonderful things to have. But a promise will reorient the rest of your life. Three, a promise always outlives your life. The promise is not only to you, it is to you and your descendants. So when it comes from God, it's big enough for everybody in your lineage to live in. Still tracking? Wishful thinking takes what is God's and makes it mine. A promise takes what is God's and makes it somebody else's by channeling through me. So in a promise, I'm never the point. The world is the point. 
and all the world shall be blessed through you. That's the promise. It's not just that you will be blessed. It's that people will be blessed through you. So you never search for a promise by looking at yourself. You find one by looking at what God is doing in the world at large. And then you just get in the line of fire. Still listening? So it outlives you because it's bigger than you. You're simply a conduit. Last, a promise always draws me closer to God, makes me more loyal. Wishful thinking often pulls me away from God. When I get what I was wishing for, I become self-reliant. And the purpose of promises is to bond the father to the child. Okay, I said that was the last one. There's one more. And it's where I'm going today. Every promise has a sign. Every promise has a sign. When God makes a promise to Abram in chapter 15, he says, go outside, count the stars, that's how your offspring shall be. It says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. What Abram didn't know is that a promise is the first half of a covenant. The other half is the sign. The sign occurs the next time God appears in Genesis chapter 17. And he says the same thing. Not only will this child come from your body, this child will come from Sarah's body. Abraham is laughing at this point. But God doubles down on the promise and says, and what comes from her body will become not just a nation, but many nations with kings coming out of those nations. He's way up there. Abraham, I have a sign that I want you to wear. What is it? Circumcision. Is there anybody else up there? I don't think I'm getting this right. That's right. I want you to circumcise yourself and all of the children that come from you and all of the people who live with you, whether you bought them as slaves or whether they come from your own body. Every male that is connected with you I want them to be circumcised, starting with you. That'll be our little sign, the two of us. God, can we negotiate this? 
I can think of a few other ways. Do you know what you're asking for? Oh, I know what I'm asking for. I'm asking for you to cut away something that is intensely private. Very, very, very sensitive. I'm asking for something that's expensive. I want it to hurt a little. I want it to be demanding. Because here's why, Abram. The thing that I'm asking you to do is the very organ you will use in bringing the promise into this world. So I want you to impose upon yourself an act of obedience that is aligned with the promise out of loyalty to your God. Here's what he said in verse 13. So shall my covenant be in your flesh. Ah, so this promise that God is giving us is to be worn in the flesh? That's right. You are to do something that other people would not do simply out of loyalty to me and in alignment with what I am going to do in your life. Now, are you still with me? I figure I mentioned circumcision. You were listening. Can I clear a couple of things up before I get to the point and finish? I'm almost there. A promise and a covenant, or rather a promise and a sign, are not the same thing. Let's be clear about this. When God gives us a promise, our horizons get bigger and longer and higher. Things become possible that were not possible before. But when we enact a sign in obedience to that promise, we put upon ourselves both disciplines and restraints that other people do not seem to have to do. But God calls for those things from us because he has made this promise. In fact, he says in chapter 17, if anyone does not wear the sign, they don't belong to the promise. They will be cut off from the covenant because... A covenant is two things, not one. It is a promise and a sign. It is not just a promise and it's not just a sign. Still with me. But they always occur in this order. God gives us a promise and then we take on the sign. If we get these out of order, then we mess ourselves up. Let me clarify. When God makes a promise to you, he will ask you to exercise disciplines and restraints that are in keeping with that promise. It is extremely important that you not adapt the signs of somebody else. 
You have to find your own. When you adapt somebody else's sign because it's attached to their promise, you get caught in legalism. If I just keep doing the sign, then maybe I will get the promise. But the opposite's also true. If you simply take the promise, but you do not take on the sign, it's abandonment. It's neglect of the responsibility that is attached to that promise. So last week, when we stood and testified, as I could have, about many passages, knowing that God gave us promises, the question is, what are we doing now that we would not be doing were it not for that promise? And what are we not doing that we used to do because of that promise? One is discipline, and the other one is restraint. Still listening? Richard Foster said, we speak often of love's permission. What about love's restraint? What won't you do anymore because of the promise God gave you? When I was a boy, I grew up in a pretty conservative church. It was full of signs. Some of you, um, you got it made. I mean, you guys are liberal, some of you. No television on Sunday, no sports on Sunday. God rested on Sunday. I said, no, that was actually Saturday. No, it's Sunday. <laughs> Can't watch TV on Sunday. Because <laughs> it's a day that's holy to the Lord. As I got older, my dad called one Super Bowl Sunday and he said, so, uh, who won the Super Bowl tonight? <laughs> I said, you should have watched. <laughs> so, and, and you guys, relax. He's since told me this. He said, Steve, you understand half of those rules that we had were not our rules. They were the rules of people around us. We lived in a bottle. I'm sorry about that. So obviously when we got older and we started raising kids, we had the same thing. We had a bunch of rules of shows they couldn't watch and things that they couldn't do and places they couldn't go. We even had a box that we put over our television set that was a five to ten second delay. And every time they used a four-letter word, it just went silent. Someone would say, I don't give up. And then they would just start talking again. Finally, one of our kids said, Daddy, why is this movie so silent? I said, oh, man, we got to change the channel, baby. 
You see it. I mean, we, and now they look back at this and they laugh and they laugh and they go, oh, you guys were so conservative. This is what happens. One generation has an encounter with God that changes their life. In that encounter, God changes their name. And when he changes their name, they look around them and they say, what is in my life right now that is keeping me from living into the promise that God has given me on this day? And they start bringing into their lives a bunch of rich, ridiculous rules about music they won't listen to and things they won't say and places they will not go. And what happens is the next generation comes along and they never heard the promise. They only heard the sign. And when they see the signs, they walk away from it and they just go, this is ridiculous. I don't even believe in that stuff. That stuff doesn't make you righteous. And we say to ourselves, I will never be a slave the way my parents were a slave. Am I describing some of you right now? Come on, because I know I am. Listen to me, people. Maybe your parents weren't a slave. Maybe you were the slave when you did it. Maybe they did it because they believed in the promise. And you only did it because there was punishment if you didn't. You were the slave, not your parents. Some of them anyway. The other ones I've met. A promise and a sign come together. If you just practice the sign, but you never hear the promise, you become a slave to rules and legislation. So when you keep them, you don't feel any better. But when you break them, you always feel worse. Dude, something ought to tell you this ain't how it's supposed to be. Others of you, have taken a promise, and you have imposed no restrictions on yourself. You just do whatever you want to do because God loves me. Why would he withhold things from me? The problem is when you pursue some of the things you still want, they're bad for you, and you just don't know it. And when you get stuck in those things, you become a slave to unintended consequences. A slave to addictions, impulses. You can say, I am nobody's slave. I am free. I do what I want. Listen to me, that ain't freedom, that's independence. Independence only separates you from some kind of authority. Freedom opens up possibilities you never had before. Freedom makes you more creative. It adds to your power. It enlarges your life. It doesn't make it smaller. If you were truly free, you would be who you ought to be. Mm, but because you are, some of you, trapped in this kind of anti-rule mentality. How much time I got? I don't have that long. Let me get to the end of it. We need to have a conversation about your obedience. 
That's the problem. Some of you that are bucking it right now, your problem, watch this, your problem is not with the rules. Your problem is with obedience. You don't like obedience. You know why? You ain't going to like this. I love you guys. So you know I'm going to say something hard. You still have an adolescent view of obedience. Some of you still see obedience as morality. That means there is some authority figure writing some kind of rule that I don't agree with. But because the punishment for disobedience is greater than the reward, I'll do it. Listen. I found three times in the New Testament, it says Jesus was obedient to the Father. What that means is, if I'm not obeying like the Son obeys the Father, I still have an adolescent view of obedience. It simply says, your mind and your will is other than mine. But because you're in control and I'm not, I'll do what is required until I can make my own decisions and then I'll go out and do what I really want to do. I love us. I do. But some of us need a higher view of obedience. That leads to the second form. It's obedience as wisdom. I preached on the freedom of obedience a couple years ago, and uh, Lee and Paula, I see you back there, they sent me an article by C.S. Lewis. I can't say it like he does. Let me read it to you. Suppose you're taking your dog on a lead through a turnstile or past a pole. You know what happens. Apart from his usual ceremonies and passing the pole, I mean, he tries to go to the wrong side and he gets his head looped around the pole. You see that he can't do it and therefore you pull him back. You pull him back because you want to enable him to go forward. He, he wants the same thing, namely to go forward. And for that reason, he resists your efforts to pull him back. Now, if he's an obedient dog, he yields to it reluctantly, which seems to be quite an opposition to his will. But in fact, it is only by yielding to you that he will ever succeed in getting what he wants. If you could speak to your dog... Some of you do. You might say, my dear dog, if by your will you mean what you really want to do, that is to go forward along the road, I not only understand this desire, I share it with you. Forward is exactly where I want you to go, but if by your will you mean the will to pull against the collar and try to force yourself in a direction which is of no use, well, I, 
I understand it, of course, but just because I understand it, I can't possibly share it. In fact, the more I sympathize with your real wish, the desire to get along the road, the less I can sympathize with your resistance to the collar because your resistance is actually making it impossible for you to get what you really want. You still with me? God not only understands, but he shares the desire, which is at the root of all of my evil. The desire for complete and ecstatic joy. He made me for no other purpose. But God knows, and I do not, how it can be really and permanently attained. He knows that most of my attempts to reach it are actually putting me further and further out of its reach. And so with these things, God cannot sympathize or agree. So contrary to the person who says, I must squelch my desires out of duty to God, he says, no, I actually share your ultimate desire and I'm redirecting your path. So you can actually find what you're looking for. And to the person who says, God affirms me just as I am, and he sympathizes with all of my desires, God says, no, because I affirm your ultimate desire, I must categorically reject your sinful actions and desires because they're keeping you away from what you really want. When we obey out of wisdom, we do it because we know that God's law is exactly what we would do anyway immediately if we knew what God knows. Which leads to the highest form of obedience that I call you into this morning, the freedom of obedience. I said there's an obedience as morality that's adolescent. Then there's an obedience as wisdom that's growing up. God's actually smarter than I am, and he knows what I really want in life. There is an obedience out of love. Six times in two chapters in John's gospel, I hear Jesus connect obedience and love. He says, if you love me, you'll obey me. You can obey me and never love me. Many have. But you cannot love me. You cannot love me unless you obey me. Because, Steve, obedience is not compliance. Obedience is the alignment of my will and yours. Francois Fenelon says... Can we really love God without hating things 
that God opposes? Can we love him without hating things that oppose him? Can we love God, he says, and ever believe that we're doing too much for him? Can we love him without trying to please him? Some years ago, 20, 25 years ago, I was uh, calling on a woman in our church. As I got into the house, I was there maybe two minutes standing at the door. She got a phone call. She walked into the other room to take the phone call. And while she was in there, I was wandering around. I looked down on the couch, and I noticed there was a letter lying open with an envelope next to it. The envelope uh, had the return address on it of Dennis Kinlaw. Well, I knew a little bit about him and liked most or not all of what I'd seen. And so, with a little bit of embarrassment, I admit this morning, I read her mail. I'm so glad I did. It wasn't a letter at all. It was an article that Ken Law had found, and he sent to her. When I read it and she got off the phone, I said, I confess I've read your mail. Can I have a copy? That was 20, 25 years ago. I've had it ever since. I'll close with it. If God has called you to be really like Jesus, he will draw you into a life of crucifixion and humility and put upon you such demands of obedience that you will not be able to follow other people or measure yourself by other Christians. And in many ways, God will seem to let other good people do things he will not let you do. Other Christians who seem very religious and useful may push themselves, pull wires, work schemes to carry out their plans, but you cannot. And if you try, you will meet with such failure and rebuke from the Lord as to make you sorry for it. Others may boast of themselves, of their work and their success and their writings and their degrees, but the Holy Spirit will not allow you to do these things. Others may be allowed to succeed in making money or have a legacy left to them, but it's likely that God will keep you poor because he wants you to have something far better than gold, like a helpless dependence on him. The Lord will let others be honored and put forward and keep you hidden in obscurity because he wants to produce in you some fruit which can only grow in the shade. He may let other people be great and keep you small. He may let others work for him and get credit for it, but he will make you work without knowing how much you're doing. And then to make your work even more precious, God may let other people get credit for work that you've done. Holy Spirit will put a strict watch over you with a jealous love. And he will rebuke you for little words and feelings or for wasting your time. And other Christians never seem distressed over this. 
But make up your mind that God is an infinite Father. And He has the right to do as He pleases with His own. He may never explain to you a thousand things which puzzle you. But if you absolutely sell yourself to be His child, He will wrap you up in a jealous love and give you blessings that only come to those in the inner circle. Settle it forever then that you are to deal directly with the Holy Spirit. And He is to have the privilege of tying your tongue or chaining your hand or closing your eyes in ways that never bother other people. Because once you are so possessed with the loving God that you are in your secret heart delighted over this peculiar, personal, demanding, private guardianship, you will have found the vestibule of heaven. Take a moment and bow your heads. What has God promised you that you still believe? What has God promised you that you still believe? Some of you are saying, Steve, I don't have a promise. All right, go back to the beginning of the message. Now you know how they come. But if you have one, do you still believe it? Do you think about it all the time? Second, what disciplines or restraints might God be asking you to do out of loyalty to him in alignment with the promise don't look around you don't ask what other people are doing that doesn't matter what is God saying to you what does he want you to take on that is peculiar to your walk with him are you willing to do that and last how many of you like me grew up with signs and no promise and you're tired of them and you just want to do what you want to do oh can I get you to double down on those things don't abandon them will you double down on them only will you do it this morning out of love for the father will you just turn and say Lord I've done these rules these stipulations and they just seem so stupid but I'm hearing today I can do them out of love 
I love you. I'll keep doing them. Do you have the courage to do that this morning? Take a moment and voice a prayer, a very simple prayer to God, committing yourself if you're willing. Now, Lord, that which we have committed on earth, may it be sealed in heaven. Open the doorway that leads to freedom. In Jesus' name.